Will you pray with me? Come, come Holy Spirit, come. Come as the fire that John the Baptist spoke of and burn in our hearts. Clear away the dross, Lord, that we might be pure and holy before you, ready and able to receive directly from your mouth, Lord, these words of eternal life. Come, Holy Spirit, come like a mighty spring and fill us up, fill us to overflowing. And Lord, I ask that you would speak through me now, that my words would be your words and your truth would be spoken, heard, and received deep in our hearts here today, for we ask it in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Please be seated. I catch my breath. It's a long way up here. So it's about that time, isn't it? Um, many of you are aware of this more than, than uh, most, uh, that uh, in countless malls across America, there are children uh, that are lining up with lists in hand, or at least lists in their minds, uh, ready to answer the question that the man in red uh, will surely ask them as they jump up on his lap, what little girl, what little boy do you want for Christmas? And they will be vibrating with excitement, ready to trot out all kinds of things that they've had marketed to them by Nickelodeon and Disney Junior. Some parents will try to thwart this to some extent. They will come up with all sorts of rules to help keep the lists of reasonable length. My wife was just telling me about uh, what we're going to do. Evidently, it will be like this. You can ask for something you want, something you need, something to wear, and something to read. I think it's a great idea. We'll see how it goes. Other parents, this was something we tried one year. I think, I don't know if this worked or not. So, uh, is to say, Jesus only got three gifts. So, you get to ask for three things. So, good luck with that, parents. We're, we're in it with you. We're trying. We'll see what we can do to fight against the great uh, consumerism of Christmas. But I actually do have a list of gifts today of three gifts, actually, and I think that they are ideal gifts, not just for children at, at Christmas, but for all people in every time. It's a list I got from the Apostle Paul, and it's from our passage from his letter to the Romans, and if you want to, uh, if you brought your Bibles, open them to chapter 15 of Romans. We're going to be looking at the first 13 vo- verses. If you don't have a Bible, we would love for you to grab one of the pew Bibles there in front of you. Romans chapter 15, uh, 1 to 13 on page 949. And, um, and as Paul uh, speaks of these gifts, he speaks of them not in sort of uh, skimpy terms, but he, he, he's, it's, it's just tons of this gift is going to be imparted. He says that the Romans, he wants them to be filled uh, and abounding with these gifts. He writes in Romans chapter 15, verse 13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So in this wrap-up 
to Paul's letter to the Romans, a letter that uh, one could argue is his most complete systematic theology, certainly his most complete uh, articulation of the gospel of Christ. Uh, Here at the end, and, and last words are important words, here at the end he wishes for his readers to have these marvelous gifts of joy, peace, and hope. Joy, peace, and hope, and they will come as gifts for certain, but not out of the blue, not in a vacuum, not down the chimney, but through their believing in the gospel of Christ, through believing. More than that, as we can see in the first several verses of this uh, chapter, there are real practices, real actions, works, you might call them, that are connected with those who have these gifts of joy, peace, and hope in believing. To put it plainly, belief in the gospel of Christ makes a difference, makes a comprehensive difference, makes a difference in how we feel, what we experience, right? So uh, joy, peace, hope, but it also makes a difference in what we do, these practices. But let's be clear about what the gospel of Christ is, shall we? Let's Paul certainly is, um, and uh, why not just use this, this letter as, as a means of understanding what the gospel is, uh, and, uh, and we'll, we'll pick a few verses from Romans. The, we read in Romans that the gospel is the power of God that brings salvation for all people. Chapter 1, verse 6, Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It's also, we read, the gospel is the righteousness of God that brings redemption and and justification for all sinners through their faith in the blood of Christ, the sacrificial blood of Christ upon the cross. Chapter 3, verses 22 to 25 Paul writes, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, that's a perfect sacrifice, by His blood to be received by faith. And the gospel is the love of God, the love of God that forgives sinner by the glory of grace. Chapter 5, verse 8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Chapter 6, verse 23, he writes, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Right? So, these verses, these are pretty familiar verses for many of us. We've read these all over uh, these verses um, throughout our lives. We, um, it's the age-old story of salvation, isn't it? It's the gospel. This is the gospel. It's the gospel. Who can forget those words at the end of chapter 8 when Paul writes these words? We, we, we say them often at, at funerals, and rightly so. Whom shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that 
neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What words. What an ending. What a powerful ending this would be, don't we think, for the letter to the Romans. I, um, I turned to our friends Edward Hart and Beth Webb Hart earlier. He's a composer. She's a, an author, a novelist, and they both agreed these would be the best. Like That would be a great ending to Romans. Problem is, it's, it's not the end of Romans, is it? And Paul goes on. And some may say that, that that kind of is Paul's main trait. He goes on and on and on and on. But he goes on in Romans. In the case of Romans, he goes on to articulate how the gospel is not only for salvation unto eternal life. That's not the end of the story. But it is to bring joy, peace, and hope now And as those with joy, peace, and hope in believing the gospel, there is a great deal that changes in how we live day to day in the here and now. Romans is a salvation letter to be sure, but it is also a justice letter and a worship letter. And so I've shared those verses or some of the verses that speak to the salvation material of his letter to the Romans. But here in our passage from chapter 15, it's all about justice and worship. So I was uh, at lunch uh, last week with some of my pastor friends from around the city. These are friends that are from all different denominations. And uh, we, though, are all evangelicals. And so that means that we are all those who believe the word of God to be a word, a gospel of salvation. Uh, We believe in the conversion uh, of people who are lost to be found, dead, to be made alive through the, the, the blood of Jesus, through this word proclaimed. We put a premium on that, furthering God's kingdom in this way. But what we were discussing was the temptation that we as evangelicals have to overly fixate on the salvation uh, portion of the gospel message to the expense of the words of justice and worship that are just as present in the gospel message. And Patrick was at the same lunch with me, and, and he coined a term that I hadn't heard yet, but I think it's apropos. It's being used to describe those preachers who, who seem to be only uh, uh, focused, concerned about the eternal salvation of people's souls at the expense of the Christian call to justice and worship, and they're called, or being called uh, soterians. So soterion is the Greek word that means salvation. Soteriology is the study of, the, the, the focus on the doctrine of salvation. I think another term you could use is call them salvations. But Christians, we have a gospel message of salvation, sure. But salvation and justice and worship, all in the name of of the Lord Jesus Christ, Him crucified, resurrected, and ascended to the right hand of God the Father who will come again to judge the living and the dead. This is what Paul wants his readers to know. That's what uh, we must know. And in fact, that's what it means to be those 
with joy and peace and hope. Those gifts, they come straight from the fact of our salvation. That redemption that we have received from sin and death, that we are uh, those who have that, that's what then motivates and empowers our seeking after justice for the weak and our harmonious worship of God. Paul reminds the Romans that this is exactly what Jesus himself embodied. It's what he did. I mean, Jesus was, of course, a man marked by perfect joy, peace, and hope, wasn't he? He was that perfected, so much so that it overflowed from him to those that he encountered wherever he went. And there's countless stories of that in the, in the Gospels. I, the one that came to me, though, was the story of the Gerasene man. Uh, remember him? He's, he's down there at that southern end of the Lake of Galilee, a, a mostly Gentile part of, of that region. And he's possessed by so many demons that, demons that when they're asked their name, they, they say, we are legion, for we are many. And these demons oppress him, and, and he's naked, and he's cutting himself, and he's in the tombs, and he's crying out. He's a maniac. He is a distressed, painful figure to behold. And when Jesus sets him free, we read that when the others from the town come, they find him with Jesus And it says he's dressed and in his right mind. And you read that account and, I mean, it doesn't even take that much of imagination to to just feel, to encounter like profound joy, peace, and hope. Not just for the man himself, but for those that come in contact. I mean, it's just got to be so mind-blowingly refreshing. Joy, peace, and hope. And that man, there he is, he's, he's dressed in righteousness. And what does he want to do? He wants to stay with Jesus. He's desperate to stay with Jesus, go wherever Jesus goes. But Jesus tells him, no, you need to not come with me. You need to go back into your town. And you need to declare all the glorious things that the Lord has done for you. And so the rest of the days of this man were marked by worship, right? He's there praising God, declaring the glory of his name, all that he has done, declaring the righteousness of God, seeking that justness of all things as he has experienced being made right, right? He's in his right mind. Things are right. They are righteous. They are just. But from this gospel moment of salvation More comes, yeah? It's not enough that he's just been set free. Then what? On he goes. The gospel goes on in the saved man's ministry in Christ's name, a ministry, I would say, of justice and worship. And just think of how this story um, was a foreshadowing of what's to come more cosmically later when Jesus would go to the cross, Uh, the one who John the Baptist points to and says, there goes the Lamb of God. He calls him the Lamb of God, the same one that he just said in our passage for today, that I'm not even worthy to, to carry his sandals. That one he refers to, this powerful one, as the Lamb of God. He was going to bear the burden of the weak by becoming weak 
himself and being sacrificed in order that all those who are weak and oppressed, even possessed, that they might be dressed in righteousness. And so Paul points to this as he wraps up this letter to the Romans. He does not want those Roman Christians to forget how Jesus put aside his rights and his privileges and his power and his might and his majesty and all of that stuff. He put it all aside for the sake of those that were weak. And more than just weak, they were dead. They are dead. We are dead in our transgressions. And so Paul writes, chapter 15, verse 3, for Christ did not please himself But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Reproaches, those are words of accusation, words of disapproval, rejection, condemnation. Those condemnatory words, those reproaches have fallen on Jesus instead. He took all that upon himself so that the failings of the weak sinners might be forgiven. But now Paul says, don't just embrace. Enjoy that for yourself. It's not just sort of a a little closed thing. You should now show similar justice towards the weak that you encounter, those that are weak. And he says in verses 1 and 2, he says, We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good, to build them up. And he goes on in verse 5 to remind the Roman Christians to be people of endurance and encouragement. Why? Because they are those who believe in a God who has been for them the God of endurance and encouragement. And to be clear about what Paul is referring to here as weak and strong, let's be clear. So in this instance, he's saying the strong are those uh, who have embraced the new covenant of grace in Christ Jesus. The weak, he says, are those uh, particularly Jewish Christians who've gone back to the old covenant and the ways of the law. That's how he holds up weak and strong here. But I would suggest, based on the holistic nature of what will happen when the uh, strong bear with the failings of the weak, I think we can extend this weak and strong imagery to incorporate all kinds of backsliding to old ways rather than living by faith. We can be any of those under the oppression of this broken world of sin, and strong can be any of those experiencing freedom to live with joy, peace, and hope in believing the gospel. And so, as one reads this, as you read this, as I read this, one must realize that he or she will be both weak and strong at one point or another right? So this is a message for all the Roman Christians. This is a message both for Jew and for Gentile. It is therefore a message for all Christians in every generation, including us. There are days when we are weak, and there are days when we are strong. And I don't know what kind of day this is for you. Maybe it's a little bit of both. And the real irony of it all is that the true strength comes as a result of recognizing our weakness. It's the very fact that we were weak, and for our sake, Christ, who is the truly strong one, the Son of the living God, that He became weak 
so that we could become strong. Those who understand this paradox are the ones with joy and peace and hope. And as such, they're the ones who live in harmony with God and with one another. Verse 7, they are those who are welcoming one another as Christ has welcomed us for the glory of God. Verse 6, even right before that, together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. These are those who live lives of worship, justice and worship. They live lives to the glory of God, live lives like these. And you are those who, Andy Crouch says in his profound book, Strong and Weak, you are those who have lives of true flourishing. Flourishing. Isn't that what we want? Isn't that what we need to flourish? Those who were weak and have been made strong in believing are those that can now live lives marked by both strength and weakness, or as Crouch defines it, um, he calls it strength, authority, and weakness, vulnerability. So it's like an intentional strong and weak life now. Authority, the capacity for meaningful action, he says. Vulnerability is exposure to meaningful risk. And then what he does in this book is he makes a a two-by-two chart with authority and vulnerability on the two axes. And so there's these quadrants. Um, High authority, low vulnerability, If you're in that quadrant, if you have lots of capacity for meaningful change, but you are not willing to expose yourself to any kind of risk, well, then you are going to be an exploiter. That's the totalitarian dictator. That's the the cruel and unusual kleptocracy head, right? If you have high vulnerability and low authority, well, then you are the oppressed. You're the suffering You're the one under the thumb. If you have low authority and low vulnerability, well, then you're just withdrawn. You're off and away from any meaningful contact with the community. And if you, though, however, have high authority, high vulnerability, if you're in that quadrant, well, then, he says, you are flourishing. You are those who flourish. You have great capacity for meaningful change and action. You have great willingness to expose yourself to meaningful risk. And isn't that Christ? High authority, high vulnerability. In the incarnation, isn't that Christ? Read your Philippians chapter 2. On the cross, isn't that Christ in all of its fullness? High and lifted up, the glory of God made manifest, King of the Jews, great authority, And yet the most profound vulnerability one can imagine. And this is what Paul says the gospel both has done for us and is what the gospel has empowered us to do ourselves as those with joy, peace, and hope. Joy, peace, and hope. That's what gives us this great authority. What can man do to me? I have eternal life. I am saved. I am a prince of the kingdom. I am a princess of the kingdom. And because of that, I can lay down my life for my friends. I can put it all at risk. I can dare to risk all for others. And so the question becomes for us this day, in the fullness of the gospel, as those saved, do we have this joy, peace, and hope? Yes, we do. Now what? 
And it goes on. In what? How we live this life. Are we willing to ask the question, how are you doing to somebody, and really mean to get an answer, and to sit and to listen and to receive that, and to bear that with the person? Are we willing to not walk past the need, but to stop, observe, feel the conviction, and to address it? Are we willing to part ways with treasure till it actually stings a bit? Are we willing to love and care for our children more than we love and care for a career? Are we willing to do the things that one with joy, peace, and hope has all the capacity to do? Are we willing to risk that vulnerability? That's the meaning of the gospel, friends. That's the fullness of the gospel. Salvation and justice and worship, adoring our oh God, adoring the Lord Jesus, living in harmony one with another. Oh, what a vision that is. What a vision it is. And I pray as we wrap up our worship here today, I pray that we will go out into the streets, out into the world, out into the various spheres of influence that we have with great authority, great vulnerability, carrying those three gifts that were given to us, joy, peace, and hope. Amen.